Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. You're listening to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week, we are joined by Shane Burley, who is an anti-fascist researcher and author, and has recently edited the book No Passeran, Anti-Fascist Dispatches from a World in Crisis. Thanks for joining us, Shane. Thanks so much for having me back. Well, the last time we spoke to you was in early 2020. Has anything happened in the last three years? (laughs) (laughs) No, nothing. We're living in a peaceful society now. (laughs) Nice one. Yeah, things have have changed quite a bit. Obviously, there's been the the presidential shift. We've seen like the liberal incoming administration, but the far right has changed really profoundly. The alt right has receded quite a bit as the primary formation. White Christian nationalism has again returned as the kind of primary branding, both of the actual fascist right, but also just kind of the far ring of the GOP. And there's been less distance between the white nationalists and this kind of national conservative or or far right or or post-MAGA wing of the GOP in the U.S., putting it in line with far right parties around the world, particularly in Europe, Israel, and Australia. So there's been a definite shift there. There's also a really interesting process by which far right movements have essentially appealed to the people that they are marginalizing. So people have been probably really... uh, kept up on the libs of TikTok phenomenon, the Chaya Reitschek, an Orthodox Jewish woman basically espousing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories whose primary recipients are trans folks, right? She's mobilizing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories to target trans folks. We've seen a number of folks of color speaking at white nationalist conferences, based and IQ conferences, basically. We're seeing like a lot of these kind of complicated, confusing political instances like Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. So we're seeing a kind of fragmentation of the traditional models of white nationalism, and we're seeing something new kind of take its, take its place. You've put out this book, No Passeran. What, what was the intention of releasing this? Yeah, part of the part of what's been happening with our discourse around anti-fascism is that we've kept an incredibly narrow focus on what we even mean when we say that. In a lot of ways, it ends up mimicking what right-wing media has said about anti-fascism, that it's a particularly subcultural group, that anti-fascism is relegated to only particular parts of certain Western countries, that it has a certain demographic to it. But the reality is that anti-fascism has been much, much bigger because it's an adjunct part of both marginalized communities and social movements, both of which have to defend themselves against insurgent reactionary movements. That's been that way for decades. And so if we want to think about what anti-fascism actually is, we want to think in a bigger, broader scope. We want to think internationally. 
internationally, we want to think about different types of communities that are less represented in this discourse, particularly dif- different demographics and how they've been approaching this, this question of community self-defense, how it relates to other social movements, and how it's going to relate to the future tactically. And so I basically started approaching people, this started back in 2018, with the idea of like, if you wanted to push the boundaries of anti-fascism, what would you write? And so that's how we sort of built up the book over time. And what we ended up with is a collection of really very, very, very different contributions with different perspectives, some of which are conflicting with one another, and take on a really, really diverse range of ideas under the banner of anti-fascism. Without wanting to get too bogged down in the definitional questions, Shane, there is, a, I think, an important distinction that's made between anti-fascism as a generic kind of concept or practice and also antifa. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, Antifa, it's often said that just simply means anti-fascism. I don't actually think that's accurate. Antifa means a particular type of militant anti-fascism. So it has a particular legacy coming out of Germany, Britain, and the US, and some other areas. Very modern, subcultural in a lot of ways, and particular types of organizing. Essentially professionalized organizers, people who have certain skills or trained, that have a certain way of organizing their organization, that has a good track record, it has a certain kind of tactics it prefers. That is great in a lot of cases and, and has a lot of proved efficacy, but it is not the entire story of anti-fascism. And so there's a lot of different types of organizing forms that kind of go around that that probably wouldn't be under the banner of Antifa. But people don't really have the language for that quite yet. And it's part of why when we're talking about anti-fascism, I want to focus on a larger movement because there's a whole lot going on there. And Antifa groups interact with other social movements and other anti-fascist groups in a lot of different ways. So what do you think are the most kind of common misperceptions of Antifa and anti-fascism? I mean, I think that one of the most common is that anti-fascism is necessarily one type of organizing, that it uses one series of kinds of tactics, or that it's simply one and the same as the black bloc. In reality, there's been mass anti-fascist organizing for decades that have taken all kinds of different tactics, including labor strikes, large-scale protest demonstrations. They've been attached to churches and synagogues. They've been in, in connection with mutual aid groups. I think another really big misconception is that it is largely white and largely male, which it is not, and that is true across national borders. I think the other thing is that one of the biggest misconceptions is that there is a sort of inability to parse out what fascism is. Actually, there's an incredible sophistication in anti-fascist organizing about what far-right movements are and what interrupting them actually does. I think the other thing about that is that people sort of often assume that the use of physical resistance indicates a lack of organizing aptitude, but that's not actually the case. And actually, in moments when physical resistance is used by anti-fascists, it's done in an incredibly tactical way. But it's also only one of the many, many, many tactics that are used. The only way to measure the efficacy is how effective it is at shutting down the far right. And so I think moving backwards from that goal is how you actually can kind of estimate how these movements work and get a clearer picture of them. Shane, could you speak a little bit about the relationship between the far right, anti-fascists and democracy? I mean, I think it's an interesting question. I say in the book that anti-fascism specifically means ways that combat the far right that don't involve the state or law enforcement. So the police are not anti-fascist. FBI is not anti-fascist. You can debate whether or not you want to use the police to bust up far right movements. They certainly have effectively shut down far right movements for prosecutions, but we make the case that there is very clear reasons coming out of the anti-fascist camp of why they might not trust law enforcement or the state connecting to the fact that the state itself is a 
not a neutral entity and that the police have themselves a lot of support and connections to the far right. So I think that the question of defending democracy is interesting because we're also usually implicitly in anti-fascist movements talking about a revolutionary ideology that challenges bourgeois democracy or liberal, liberal democratic norms as being insufficient. I think this ends up being an interesting negotiation of the radical left in general. On the one hand, wanting to defend hard-fought democratic rights like voting rights, particularly marginalized communities. But on the other hand, not really wanting to put the future of our communities in the hands of our current democratic process, which is not one that can actually manifest any kind of liberated vision. So I think what we are thinking of when we want to think of like these radical politics, we want to think of the actual furtherance of democracy and the expansion of democracy and to try and look at it in a more direct democratic model. And so I think when we're talking about defending democracy, I think it's worthwhile to fight back against authoritarian attacks on our actual electoral democratic systems. But that is only really step one to pushing past the limits that we've had of the democratic state and trying to have a society where democracy actually becomes a much more flourishing and in-depth part of daily life. It's funny you should say that the FBI aren't anti-fascist. I was looking at a a docs of some neo-Nazis that came out yesterday, and one of the first replies in the tweet thread was, uh, at FBI. Are are you suggesting that this is not an effective way of uh, countering fascism to tag in the FBI? Yeah, I mean, there's there right now people volunteering at the FBI. These are unpaid civilian volunteers. Some of them go by the name Deep State Dogs and other embarrassing acronyms, and they are combing through the social media posts of people who may have been at the January 6th insurrection so as to help the FBI prosecute them. And I understand the impulse to use law enforcement against your enemies. I get very, I get where that comes from, particularly seeing, for example, like recently there was just the the murder of a black man in Memphis by police and saying like, wow, this is happening to these communities, yet these white nationalists or far right people get off scot-free. So I understand why people will want to try and fix that seeming disparity. But the reality is, is that what's happening is they're strengthening the FBI's ability to attack activists in general. The FBI's interest is not attacking white nationalism. It's attacking quote unquote radicalism, anything that threatens their status quo. And they're much more likely to use that against marginalized communities on the left. Much, much more likely. So by participating in that, you help build up the state apparatus that can then be used for repression both against yourself and against other kinds of social movements. So instead, we really need to think about what our long-term strategy is. And that's why anti-fascists come completely separate from that. When we talk about in the book, particularly in the chapters on Black anti-fascism, that anti-fascism comes as a result of the police being unable or unwilling to protect Black communities and other marginalized communities. They have to protect themselves. They have to create systems of self-defense. That is essentially anti-fascism. And so we're already thinking outside the model of the police. And we have to think about why it is that people have had to think outside of that. And that really needs to inform the strategic choices. Because in reality, strengthening up police infrastructure has never has never actually undermined the far right. And in most cases, it only strengthens the same apparatus that the far right is sort of manifesting. That docs that I was referring to was of a couple who provide uh, homeschooling resources to other neo-Nazis. And an amazing docs too. I think the first time I've seen someone get sprung by their dog, but that was put out by the Anonymous Comrades Collective. Uh, I guess my question is though, When you have a situation like that, where these people are providing neo-Nazi homeschool resources to thousands of people, potentially, what what can be done about that, aside from assigning a social cost to the action? 
I think it's that's a complicated question because you, on the one hand, don't want to put the authority into large-scale organizations that you're not in support of. So, for example, there's a lot of effort to crack down on the far right in social media and to force social media companies to basically have really stringent policies. I think it, there's, a, there's a difference between the direct pressure that activists put on a company to give results than just having the company sort of autonomously create more rigorous standards. And so I think that's a little bit complicated. I think what's particularly useful is to look at these people and their organizations as individuals and to take create campaigns that pressure them away from actually being able to produce that content. So by targeting those people, by looking at their entire social infrastructure, obviously it does, like you said, it raises the social cost, but it actually disrupts the functionality of it. And that's the most important thing. We're not combating the far right because we do not like them personally. We're doing it because it's effective and because their speech and that stuff is organizing. So when they're producing, like you said, that kind of neo-Nazi homeschool stuff where they're quoting Hitler and stuff, that is a form of organizing, right? It's reproducing itself. So we want to break the chain as much as possible. I think there's other options too. Where is their material housed? What's the financial infrastructure for it? How are they communicating with people? How can you interfere in those sort of different areas? And I think if we start thinking in that way, it starts to open up what we're talking about. Because we think oftentimes that when something's done through this third-party tech platform, the only option is to pressure the company to, to pull permissions. But that may not be the only option. So I think there's a bunch of different ways to organize risk there. You can organize in the communities that these families are in. You can organize with the kids that are getting this stuff. There's a lot of options when we start to think a little bit bigger and when we take lessons from other social movements and trying to apply them to this situation. Speaking of social media, Shane, what do you think it means that, and how significant is it, I suppose, that right-wing grifters like uh, Adinho now have the year of billionaires like Elon Musk? I mean, I think it's well, for one, this is sort of the model of internet capital, which bases itself really heavily on this kind of recuperation of the image of the disruptor. And so I think it's sort of built for this. Elon Musk taking over Twitter makes a lot of sense sort of intuitively. A person who built up a sort of mirage of a successful tech career, combination of venture capital and taking over other people's projects and government subsidies. So I think like what it makes, there's a certain kind of logic to it that I think is inescapable. It's problematic. Obviously, things like 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 Twitter has this inherent problem with it. I don't know that creating things like Mastodon actually replace that function. And instead, I think we have to think about these tech platforms in the most cynical way possible. What can they get us? How can we use them? But I do think it shows a general rightward shift in public discourse as such. And this was the thing that sort of had a wax and wane in the early alt-right. Part of why the alt-right was so successful is that they could be on the same platforms and do so successfully as everybody else. And then they were slowly de-platformed by the combination of their kind of own ineptitude and of anti-fascist pressure. Now we're seeing that sort of return. It's a different community. It's not the exact same people. It's a different community. But we're seeing that shift again. And I think we're going to have to reimagine what those tactics look like. But again, it shows part of what this new far-right is emerging out of. And it's emerging less out of the historic white nationalist movement and more out of this quote-unquote heterodox field where people use oftentimes liberal arguments to push far-right ideas. Um, Shane, in terms of understanding the enemy, one of the uh, points of discussion in the book is distinguishing fascism from other right-wing doctrines. And one of the arguments that's that's made in the book and obviously elsewhere is that uh, fascism has a 
an insurrectionary or revolutionary quality. Can you explain what that means and why it's important to recognize that? Yeah, I mean, fascism is fundamentally an attempt to free oneself. This is, I think, a really critical, uh, critically important component because what fascist movements do is they feed on this instability and precarity and the desire to actually kind of revolt against the status quo and to build something new entirely. And so what we're oftentimes looking at is people who get the sort of feedback loop of class strife of a certain sort, except it's being recast in racial or gendered or other kinds of identitarian terms. And so what you see oftentimes is the same underlying economic situations mixed with a, a bit of kind of working class privilege, basically a privileged class within the work, a privileged component of the working class splitting and sort of trying to attach themselves to that privilege as much as possible as a way of staving off this kind of alienation or economic oppression. And so what we're seeing is the rise of far-right movements as a way of the right to channel kind of a populism of some sort and to basically create a language for that feeling of dislocation, community dislocation, and alienation. And so a fascist movement is fundamentally one that promises revolution, right? It promises that if you give into its vision – of quote-unquote traditionalism or reifying certain social stratifications, that that will give you a liberated life, that you'll be happier, your family will be safe, that you'll have a more meaningful day-to-day existence. And so this actually becomes one of the more confusing parts of it, because in that way, it often mimics the left. It uses language of revolution. It has people who engage in organizing. It talks about capitalism and the state. It oftentimes even talks about some of the specific experiences, like alienation, breakdown of community. Ecofascism talks about the environment. Certain kinds of nationalist movements talk about, quote unquote, imperialism. They will use a lot of these triggering impulses to then push a far right solution. And that's why I think half understandings of what fascism are can be really dangerous because people end up missing what they're looking at. And that's where you see the creep of far ideas into other types of areas where you wouldn't think that they would have purchase like the environmental movement or the anti-war movement or the movement to confront bankers on Wall Street. And so I think that's why we have to have this sort of real clear uh, clear-headed, wide-eyed ab- approach to what fascism is because otherwise we're going to end up uh, allowing in a lot of far-right ideas into social movements unexamined. You used the word creep to describe that. One of the chapters in the book is why does the US far-right love Bashar al-Assad? Of course, the US far-right are not the only people who love Bashar al-Assad. Could you say a little bit about red-brown politics? Yeah. So part of what the chapter is getting at is looking at why the far right, in this case, the alt-right, specifically Richard Spencer and other folks, would be supporting Assad at the same time as, quote unquote, anti-imperialist folks on the left or ostensibly on the left would be. And again, this comes from an enemy of my enemy politic where they're seeing multipolarity as a solution to the larger problem of U.S. hegemonic dominance. And this is what you said is red-brown politics, which means a fascist, quote-unquote, red, usually authoritarian, communist, or Stalinist politic. And there's a long, long history about this going back decades. But a lot of times what happens is that nationalist politics come under the guise 
of some kind of economic socialism, usually at the cost of anti-oppression politics, so quote-unquote anti-woke socialism. And there's a number of versions of this that have happened historically, and we're seeing a number of them today. A good example of this is the Red Scare podcast, ostensibly a dirtbag left, PC leftists. But when you listen to it, they're quoting white nationalists, they're using kind of gender essentialist arguments, they're calling people queerphobic slurs, and they're really, really slipping into the far right. They're bringing in argumentation that are incredibly comfortable on the alt-right, yet they're kind of using this kind of tokenistic social democratic economic populism. And this is something that has had different brands over the years and has continued to have purchase. And I think when we're thinking about in the international arena, this is incredibly popular and incredibly trenchant part of the discourse around, for example, the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, obviously the war in Syria, and a number of other places where people see, for example, breaking up U.S. hegemony as itself a good, and therefore allying with, say, Iran or with Russia, despite them having entrenched reactionary regimes, is useful in that it breaks up Western capital. I think what happens in that is once you create those alliances, those ideas actually port themselves over. And that's what the chapter talks about quite a bit. There's a really good reason why the alt-right would support Assad. They have similar nationalist ideas about how a country should be formed. The question should be more, why is the left supporting Assad? And I think that's actually the question that we should ask in a lot of these international conflicts is like when you're looking at reactionary regimes fighting the US or fighting NATO countries or whoever it is, why is it that automatically you would then side with a reactionary regime instead of having a critical approach to both or having a more holistic leftist politic? And so I think coming at the left with this is really important. This is one of the places where anti-fascism makes its most important intervention is onto the left itself. Unexamined far-right politics making their way into leftist spaces. Anti-fascists, because they watch that train of thought come in, come in with a lot more skills to be able to confront it. And that's not true just in terms of this, this international arena. It's, it's true in terms of ecological politics. It's true in terms of conspiracy theories coming in and the anti-war movement, things like that. Anti-fascists have always been the ones to basically take the unpopular position and have to, to challenge those ideas when they're coming. Shane, could you talk a little bit about the concept of building in, an infrastructure of care and what relationship do you think there should be between anti-fascism and other social movements? Yeah, I think like for one, there needs to be an infrastructure that has consequences for far-right movements because what it does is it actually strips the mass out of them. Now, if I put social pressure on a the Ku Klux Klan, for example, I'm not pushing David Duke out of the movement. David Duke is in for life. But I might push his recruits out and that actually shrinks the ability of them to organize because what they need is both organizational memories, but also a larger periphery of people around them. That's what gives them their influence and their muscle. And so we want to push those people out by taking, saying, if you're not fully committed to this, the cost is going to be way too high. You're going to be, you might lose your job, you might lose your apartment, you're going to be dislocated from your friends and family. That's really important. And that is something that you can bring to scale right? Like you can do that infrastructurally, right? There are organizations like you just mentioned one, the Anonymous Combat Collective, that will dox these people and people can create organizing campaigns to put pressure on the people in their lives to push them out so as there, there are consequences to it. That will stop people from joining in the first place. And that is a measurable good. 
I think engaging other social movements, there's a number of things. Again, this concept of periphery is really important. Anti-fascist movements, like any social movement, have a core and they have an outside. So you have a core of organizers who do most of the work, and then you have activists who support them. Maybe they come out to a march. Maybe they come out and lend a hand one day, but they're not engaged in the everyday part of organizing. That's how all organizing works. And so large social movements need to engage with each other as coalitions and lend each other members and support both materially and in terms of person. And that is the relationship that anti-fascism can and must have with other social movements. They are the natural base for that periphery to have that mass action. If you want a mass anti-fascist demonstration that, for example, blocks a Proud Boy march, you have to have hundreds, if not thousands of people. Those people have to come from somewhere. And the most direct way is to mobilize with other social movements. Obviously, you also need to mobilize with the public. And again, those social movements have different options for different communities. A labor union can communicate with a different audience than an Antifa group can. So it's great to connect with a labor union and work to connect with those people. Mutual aid groups, same thing. The other thing is that social movements are distinctly targeted by the far right and they need anti-fascism. They need community self-defense. That's just absolutely necessary. We saw this really clearly with the mutual aid groups in 2020 that were ended up being targeted by Proud Boys, Patriot Prayer, other groups. And so we need to have that defensive infrastructure all the time. And I think particularly offensive movements, Black Lives Matter, people confronting police violence, you're also going to be subject to that targeting by the far right. So we need to have that defensive measure there. So there has to be this component of permanent coordination between social movements. And that this is not just a, an anti-fascist question. It's not just a question of how to maintain it and reproduce anti-fascism. It's how you maintain and reproduce any social movement. What do you think is the particular role of anarchists to anti-fascism? And what do you think that anarchists in particular uh, bring to the table when it comes to shaping anti-fascism? Yeah, I think so. I think anarchism has had a distinct impact on anti-fascism over the last three decades, particularly in the U.S., you can see that in the way that anti-fascist groups talk about fascism that's distinctly different than a lot of like Trotskyists or, or traditional Marxist groups have talked about it. I think that they bring in a different analysis about power, about nations and nationalism and about identity that is particularly useful for understanding this weird dislocated far right that doesn't fit traditional old school models of, for one, class analysis, but two, traditional statehood. And so I think we need to be thinking more dynamically about that. Anarchists also bring in a tactical skill set of of adaption that allows them to sort of bring in new tactics as necessary and to engage in a lot of this direct action work that's sort of a, a praxis that lends itself really well here. So there's a lot of reinvention that's coming out of anarchist movements because of that. I think also decentralization is important for adapting to local conditions, but implicit to that, confederation and federation has the ability of creating the kind of coordinations that we need that allows groups to remain autonomous, but also to have the connections necessary to build those coalitions I was talking about. So I think anarchist ideas are really implicit to this. And I also think that anarchism is positioned to speak to the new situation that a lot of working class, particularly young people, are experiencing the kind of new precarious economy, the de-emphasis of nation states in the economic project, and the kind of confusing way that a lot of problems are emerging, I think are best handled by this direct 
organizing model that centers ourselves in our communities outside the state and tries to provide both direct support and direct resistance when necessary. We need the flexibility. We need to be able to adapt quickly. And we need to create social organization outside the model state that is going to allow us some kind of purchase for the future. Now, Shane, I think we'll try and not have three years between now and the next time we talk to you, but perhaps what do you see coming down the pipe? So I see a lot of aggressive organizing all around Christian nationalist lines and Christian nationalist rhetoric, particularly around a few key target issues. And these bridge the GOP with the far right. So particularly targeting um, LGBT events, but specifically youth-oriented events like Drag Queen Story Hour, the targeting of trans healthcare facilities, and then kind of post-row targeting of abortion facilities. Though the first two right now are taking predominance. And so I think there's going to be an incredible focus on that. Again, the the quote unquote campaigns against critical race theory, they're continuing. But I think the first two I mentioned right now is where the far right's energy is, but it's also where they've been the most threatening. And so it's where anti-fascists are adapting to protect most centrally. And so I think in a way, this actually creates opportunities because it bridges a lot of movements in their common cause. So in the same way that historically anti-fascists have worked with abortion defenders doing clinic defense, right now anti-fascists are working with trans rights activists to better defend healthcare facilities and other LGBT groups. And those are alliances that they really, really need to build up. And again, like I mentioned, a lot of the attacks are also coming from people who kind of mistakenly might be interpreted as coming from the left. For example, trans-exclusionary radical feminists participating with the far right. Or like I mentioned, quote unquote, dirtbag leftists engaging in kind of anti-trans politics. Like we need to be able to look at the actual politics of the people and not assume friendly intent simply because they're coming from something that seems branded as from coming from the left. The reality is, is that some far right movements have had the left mobilized into them. And we have to be really clear sighted about that. Shane, I just finally a comment on the importance of the transnational dimension of anti-fascism and why you think it is that it's important to develop and to have an understanding of fascism as you know transnational phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, so the, one of the ways that I define fascism in the first book is in a fashion that decouples it from Europe, meaning that fascism is a process of modern states and economies that can happen in different conditions. It, have, it appears differently. Hindu nationalism, for example, we have a chapter in the book, it appears differently than American white nationalism, but they do have crossover and connection. And the far right is building alliances all over the place. This is especially true in Europe with far-right populist parties like the um, like Alternative for Deutschland or um, Law and Justice Party. So we need to see that those are already building those alliances and those are creating a pathway for both money and people and different kinds of coordination. So we have to do the same thing. We have to figure out how we're going to support people in Europe and in other places and how we're going to have to build the strategic pathways to actually put pressure in those ways. And I think this is actually one of the more confusing things in front of us because it creates a lot of problems for how we think of this. For example, right now in Israel, there's a really burgeoning far-right movement, and we've seen a lot of settler violence in the last few days. But this is coming out of a really far-right slate that combined with Likud to help build the new coalition government. Well, that gives us a direct alliance, anti-fascists, with Palestinian activists who are facing this on the front lines in the West Bank. 
let's think about how to create that kind of collaboration. How are we going to create that collaboration against the far right in Britain or in Germany with labor activists or with trans rights activists? We have common cause. We need to figure out those, those kind of strategic alliances. And I think one of the things that we can do and learn from international solidarity is look at who's most effective internationally and figure out what it is that they need for us and then do so as a coalition. And I think if we start thinking in that way of letting folks lead the way and just kind of show us what's tactically most efficient, then we're actually going to build up a new set of strategies. Well, Shane, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. The book is No Passeran. It is out through AK Press and people can find you on Twitter at Shane underscore Burley one. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Andy, that is all for us. We'll be back next week. Global Intifada is up next. See you later. See you then. You know, they show up in the helmets and the black masks and they've got clubs and they've got everything antifa have you experienced or seen racism against black followers report racism against first nations people with call it out an online register to expose racism stand up be heard call it out go to callitout.com.au a 3cr supporter bikers against child abuse backer exists to create a safer environment for abused children We exist as a body of bikers to empower children to not feel afraid of the world in which they live. We stand ready to lend support to our wounded friends by involving them with an established, united organisation. If you would like to know more about Backer, please visit our website at bacaworld.org or call 1-800-692-222. A 3CR supporter.